This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook, and today we're talking about a history of prejudice, race, caste, and difference in India and the United States. And this is the latest book by Gainendra Pandey. Gainendra is a professor at the Department of History in Emory College, and the book is really a, a wonderful analysis of prejudice and democracy for a comparison of African Americans on the one side and Indian Dalits on another. Now, these large themes and these disparate populations are explored by focusing on particular case studies. And these case studies are at once both very private and public. And I think they really now allow for a unique, subtle and delicate analysis of what maybe in other people's hands might be quite unwieldy topics. I really enjoyed this book and I had the pleasure of speaking with Gainendra just a few moments before. Okay, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Gayan onto the podcast. Thanks so much for your fascinating book and uh, thanks again for coming on. You're welcome. Okay, so I'm sure many of our listeners will know you primarily as a scholar of South Asia, but I think a good way of of getting to the heart of your new book is to ask you, what was it that motivated you to start working on racial prejudice in the US? And what did you hope to learn by placing the history of prejudice of Dalits and African-Americans side by side? And that's um, a large question which could have many uh, long-winded answers. Way to respond to that is to say the two things and two different ways I might um, think about this. Uh, one is that we grew up uh, from the middle of the 20th century, I think people who, who grew up in the post-First World War, post-Indian uh, independence sort of period, um, grew up in a world that was very concerned with change all over the world, with transforming the world. Uh, so we grew up with a very great interest in and awareness of struggles in the United States, in Vietnam, in China, you know, you name it, uh, all over Africa, of course. These were very important parts of our own uh, upbringing and our education. Um, so I had an interest in the black struggle, in the women's struggle, in the anti-Vietnam war struggle, the, as, as far as the United States was concerned, uh, from quite early on, from my days as an undergraduate and a graduate student, uh, late 60s and 70s, and uh, on from there. Um, so that's one reason why um, the history of South Asia and the history of the struggle to transform South Asia was always going to be seen uh, alongside other struggles. Why, in my case, uh, this came to be um, a juxtaposition of uh, an American struggle with an Indian struggle was that I moved to 
the United States in uh, at the end of the 20th century in 1998. Uh, and when I did that, and when I realized after a few years that I actually lived in this country and wasn't just commuting, wasn't just traveling, visiting occasionally from India, um, I felt it was very important for me to engage with the politics and history of the people around me. Uh, not to be making a revolution, you know, 6,000 miles or 9,000 miles away, um, but uh, to be engaged with the politics and struggles of people right around me. Um, and so I turned back to stuff that I had been reading. I got far more involved with reading uh, about the African-American struggle and writings and, uh, and uh, history. Um, so that's the more immediate reason for that. Why the juxtaposition of those two happened was that I had been working on the Dalit struggle before I left India for some time. And I hadn't written a great deal about it, but I had been working for, on it for several several years. As part of ongoing work, work we'd been, which we'd been doing for a good 20 years by then, certainly, on um, the history of marginalized peoples, subordinated peoples, peoples whose histories weren't written, who didn't have their own archives and who didn't have state power. So the Dalits were part of that investigation for me. When I came to the States and felt I needed to engage with things here, I turned to stuff I already knew uh, to some extent or I was already interested in to a great extent. And um, a struggle that the Dalits had invoked repeatedly. And what's paralleled about the African-American Dalit struggle is both our subordinate people's classes, um, castes, um, stigmatized for a very, very long time, given formal citizenship and yet struggling in, in to, down to our day, to today, uh, to realize the benefits or to be equal, seen as equal hmm. in the social world. Uh, and so their juxtaposition uh, seemed sensible and um, uh, worthwhile. And I certainly learned a lot by putting them together. Wonderful. And we'll explore this uh, more as we go on throughout that discussion. But before we do get into sort of the meat of the book, I want to talk about a distinction you make early on between universal and vernacular prejudice. So could you please talk us through this distinction and how it relates to the modern? Okay, and um, I can see that you've got a whole set of <laughs> difficult questions. There. <laughs> They're fairly fundamental questions, and as a result, they're actually difficult to answer briefly. But um, let's hope that some of the people listening to this um, conversation uh, will follow them up by reading not only my book, but other books that might relate to these uh, questions. So what I do in, uh, early in the book uh, is to say that it would help us. I say, first of all, that, of course, prejudice, the, the mark of prejudice is that it is unacknowledged. Uh, none of us ever um, would say, seem to be willing to acknowledge that we are prejudiced. Uh, it's always other people who are prejudiced. And in, in an odd way, because it's not acknowledged, prejudice has no archive. It's not something that's openly discussed and debated. Now, as soon as I say that, you will um, recognize, and I recognize, that of course there are times in history when certain kinds of prejudices are noticed. Uh, and for recent times, we've all talked about racism and casteism and you know, what in India is called communalism, uh, prejudice about other religious communities by members of one religious community uh, and so on, um, sexism. And, you know, one could go on. 
And there are times when those kinds of prejudgments, things that we have grown up with, things that we unthinkingly believe about other kinds, other groups of people, other kinds of people, um, they come to be acknowledged because they become rather extreme. So there are moments of racial conflict or caste conflict or communal conflict or even gender issues that produce polarized positions and produce an acknowledgement of very, very different perspectives. Um, I call this vernacular prejudice. I call these prejudices which are sometimes recognized, sometimes recognized as things that need to be controlled, um, disciplined, um, if you like, ameliorated, that the state must intervene and do something about these things, or reformers must intervene and do something about these kinds of prejudices. I call them, I, I, I suggest they are what we might think of as sometimes visible prejudice, mm -hmm. uh, and I call them vernacular for that reason. They, they are thought to be containable, they are thought to be particular to certain groups, certain kinds of people, certain times, um, even though um, I think most of us, if we thought about it, would acknowledge uh, that is far from being the case, that they are in fact much more widespread than we are willing to acknowledge. Nonetheless, so I marked off as vernacular prejudice those kinds of prejudices that sometimes come to light, come to be focused and come to be addressed as things that need some attention and, if possible, containment and change. As against that, I wanted to mark something that is even less acknowledged, if you like, and that was a common sense of any time, the common sense of a community, of a period, of a world, which I call a universal prejudice because it becomes so commonsensical, it is taken on board as natural, the truth, um, something that is completely unquestioned. And your um, uh, suggestion, your uh, request that we relate this to the modern, uh, helps think about the, what I call universal prejudice, even less acknowledged, even less visible than the vernacular prejudices, in that we can think about what it is to be modern, what is considered as being modern. And that might give us some clue or an entry into thinking about what I've called universal prejudice. Um, if we think for a moment about what it is to be modern, I think the answers we come up with very quickly uh, have to do with nationhood and citizenship and an unmarked citizenship, which I will try and explain. But um, let's just begin with nationhood. Each of us, for about 100 years or 150 years from somewhere early in the 20th century, um, no, we haven't had 150 years from that time, but in any case, for, for a good century and more, there's been a, um, a sense that um, we all, each of us, belongs to a nation, to one nation. And we owe supreme loyalty to that nation. Now, this comes to be accepted as a common sense, truth, there's almost nothing more to be said about it. It just happens to be true. Now, a great deal of this has been eroded in recent times, uh, and yet I believe that common sense prevails. It remains, it remains in place, that somehow we all belong to individual separate, separate nations, and we all owe a primary loyalty, a supreme loyalty to that nation. Now, uh, if we think about it, this really goes against the grain of most people's existence. Most of us exist in many 
many spaces. You've just said that you are from Northern England and you live in Hungary. Um, and Europe now inhabits, or Europeans of, in the main inhabit many different nations. Yet we continue with the belief that each nation must have one language, one way of being, one um, uh, kind of understanding and set of values which mark us as citizens of that nation, as modern citizens of that nation. And let me just illustrate that, and perhaps that will be enough um, uh, on this question and on the notion of the modern. Let me illustrate that with a very trivial example of what it is to be modern and with a somewhat more abstract, philosophical uh, sort of level of thinking about what it is to be modern. The trivial one, which anyone who's been to India, but in, but, uh, in most parts of the world, uh, we would recognize the trivial one is that to wear Western dress, especially for men, and to speak a European language, English or French or German or something like that, is to be modern. And to speak other languages is somehow to be vernacular, you know, in some other sort of space. Now, one can challenge that. There, there are obviously counterexamples the Japanese have produced and the Chinese continue to use their own languages. But nonetheless, there's a kind of equation in a trivial sort of way between being dressed in a tie, in a suit, in a coat, and speaking English uh, or French or whatever it is, and being modern. So that's the trivial example, which is unthinking in the main, and I just I just want to leave it there. The more difficult, but I think the more powerful uh, illustration of this is that we are all taught to and we are all expected to speak in a language, not just the mundane English, French, um, um, German, Hindi, Japanese, Chinese, whatever it might be, um, but philosophically in a language that is modern. And by that, what we are being told is that, for example, spirituality and faith, the sorts of things that Gandhi adhered to, are not really modern. They're somehow kind of antiquated, um, at, at the least eccentric. They're out of joint. What we want is something that has to do more with a calculable profit and loss understanding of the world predominantly an economic profit and loss with some sense of welfare perhaps thrown in. Sometimes this is called development. This is the language of modernity. And if we do not inhabit that language, then we are somehow out uh, of joint. We are out of place. We are not quite modern. And it's in that sense. So just to illustrate that, so Ayers Rock in the center, in the middle of uh, Australia, or many, many forest sites and, uh, and hill, hill um, sites in central India, uh, or in uh, New Mexico, or the oil fields of Colorado. These should not be at any time thought of primarily as spiritual sites. They should be thought of primarily as economic resources, right? That's the modern. And that is an example of the kind of universal prejudice that we all accept um, without um, thinking twice about it. Wonderful. That's set us up well, theoretically, to, to talk now a little bit more about the case. So in Chapter 2, you, you have a provocative discussion about the idea of difference. So again, a, another big question for you, but could you please tell us about how difference has been deployed in both the Indian and American contexts and to what effect? Okay. Um, 
Again, I, I suspect that the background here uh, would be, um, well, anyway, let, let it come out in my answer. I was going to start with a philosophical proposition about difference, but let, let the philosophy of what we mean and, and the sort of abstract quality of the notion of difference emerge from my answers. The major difference that is marked in Indian discourse over the last hundred years now is the difference between Hindus and Muslims. Um, uh, it has been marked as the predominant difference of the Indian nation, the one that, that one needs to pay attention to. In exactly the same way, the difference between blacks and whites has been, what should we say, the fundamental, the, the um, underwriting, you know, the, the, the fundamental plank of thinking America or North America. Um, there are, of course, any number of other differences, right, within these countries, cultural, political, etc. There are any themselves <clears throat> as um, recognizably different from others, which are not always marked as so fundamental. And that is the first thing that um, I, I wanted to suggest by using the notion of difference, that difference is deployed politically in particular historical contexts for political purposes. This is, this is absolutely critical. So what happens, for example, is the fundamental, it used to be thought of as biological difference between men and women, the difference between male and female, is just simply assumed. It's not even talked about uh, um, most of the time. Uh, it's not central to the political concerns of most nations for most times until, in fact, women's struggles and the feminist struggle um, or questions about sexuality bring these questions to the fore, make that difference politically significant. So I want, I want to suggest, uh, and the book, the book suggests, that it's interesting to think why certain kinds of differences do not emerge as the most significant or particularly significant for very long periods and then emerge at other times as rather significant. In that category, I would put, for example, in the, in the United States, the Native American one, which is simply assumed. It is, the Native Americans are invisible. They're not a very large part of the discourse and so the difference is not uh, charged in the same way as the difference between blacks and whites, African Americans and uh, the rest of the European background, American population. Um, in the same way, Hispanics have become a Latina, Latino population in the United States, has become very significant now, marked as different, and yet this was not the case for a lot of the earlier part of the 20th century, up to about the 1970s. They were there, they were different, but it was not particularly marked as significant, uh, significant politically. In the same way, I want to suggest that Dalits in India were not marked as significant politically. They come to be marked, in fact, because they become politically relevant, politically challenging, and they come to organize themselves politically and to ask questions about how these differences are organized to produce the sameness, if you like, the, the, the what shall we say, uh, mainstream of the nation. So what differences are marginalized, are relegated even into the realm of the invisible, and what differences are invoked in order to produce the mainstream discourse, 
the thing that is naturalized as the real nation against which all differences are measured. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, now, one of, the, one of the specific things that you look at in the book is the a fascinating case of Dalit conversion, the conversion of Dalits to Buddhism, most primarily to Buddhism, but also to, to other religions. So first, um, for those people who are not familiar with it, could you tell us a little bit about this practice and then why you consider it to be an assertion of sameness? Okay. Um, <laughs> I struggle simply because all of those questions really call for so much more than I'm going to be able to say. Um, here, here's the, the short answer on uh, Dalit conversions to other religions. The Dalits, I, I first want to emphasize, the Dalits as a community, as a political constituency, are a recent appearance. Uh, it is only from the later 19th century or the early 20th century that the group of castes and subcastes that were considered largely untouchable came to be viewed collectively as the untouchables, the outcasts, the fifth varna, the fifth category of the Indian caste system, actually outside the caste system and so on. And it's only in the post-independence period in the second half of the 20th century and really from the 1970s and 80s on that the Dalits, or at least the politically active members of the ex-untouchable communities, have called themselves Dalits and given themselves the name Dalits, which literally means the oppressed, the uh, people who have been smashed into little bits. This has been reclaimed by Dalit uh, activists, Dalit intellectuals, as their history. This is what happened to them. They are the oppressed, the wretched of the earth, the people who built the earth, built the world, made the world, from whose benefits they have been uh, pushed away, marginalized, deprived. Um, so the Dalits, were at this bottom of the hierarchy in the Indian social setup, uh, different castes and subcastes, over a very, very long period. And because of that, from the early modern period onwards at least, there are many, many examples of low caste, low, the lowest castes and classes, seeking to escape the conditions of oppression and discrimination under which they lived by converting to other religions. So there are many, many converts to Islam in the period of Mughal rule in India, Muslim rule uh, in many different parts of India. Uh, con converts from the lowest caste seeking some kind of escape, opportunity to engage in other kinds of crafts, the opportunity to own land, those sorts of things, which quite often because of their caste status they were denied earlier on. From that early experience, into the 18th and 19th centuries, there are conversions to Christianity, conversions to Islam again, uh, and so on. So the conversion to Buddhism, which happens in 1956 on a large scale, the greatest leader of the Dalits in the mid-20th century, and now the recognized, um, what shall we say, Martin Luther King and, and uh, Malcolm X of the Indian Dalit movement, is one man called B.R. Ambedkar. Um, Baba Sahib Ambedkar and Ambedkar in 1936 said I was born a Hindu it was not my fault it was not my choice but it is my choice and I will not die a Hindu because of the discrimination that people in my caste and at my level and amongst my um, uh, people uh, suffer 
And so, and he spent 20 years from 1936 to 1956, the year in which he died, and just a few months before he died, he converted to Buddhism. He spent 20 years trying to decide which religion the Dalits should embrace, or his community of Dalits should embrace. In the end, they, he, he chose Buddhism in uh, primarily, I, uh, I suggest, or uh, many scholars have suggested, because it would retain the Indic tradition, they would remain within a tradition that was their own, the Indic tradition, uh, and because he saw it as a rational religion, the religion of the modern world. This is the one religion that fits, according to him, with the needs of uh, modern peoples and nations and states everywhere. And so that happened as the, um, uh, in 1956, thousands um, of people converted to, to Buddhism along with him. And since then, many, many more have converted. But I do want to emphasize that that conversion is only one part of a Dalit conversion that has continued. There are still conversions to Islam, there are occasionally conversions to uh, Christianity, and unfortunately, many of these things have given a fillip to, to a kind of backlash amongst the Hindu right, uh, Hindu right-wing politicians and activists who, who are now fight against this um, uh, practice of conversion. Then yes, that's a separate history. The, that's what was happening in the conversion uh, to Buddhism, uh, as to other religions. I have called it in my book a conversion to citizenship, to modernity, to, uh, it's, a, it's a political demand to being human beings. So the conversion to Buddhism is all of those things together. And that probably uh, would help to answer your question about why do I call it a conversion to sameness? Why is it an assertion of sameness? It's an assertion of sameness in precisely that sense, that we are citizens too. We are equal to everybody else in, the, in, in this country and indeed in the world. What is more, Ambedkar and his followers have said that the history of India is really a long history, a millennial long history of struggle between Buddhism and Brahmanism. And the Brahmins subjugated the Dalits, the Buddhists. But it is the Buddhists who have made the world and it is the Buddhists who may show to the world what its future should be, what the best kind of world might be. As a result, they're calling for sameness, but they're calling for a different sameness, a sameness in which the dignity of labor, the fruits of labor, and the importance, the centrality of, of human labor to the making of all worlds is recognized, appreciated, and, and fully rewarded. Um, I hope that that helps answer the question to some extent. That's a, that's a wonderful answer. Thank you very much. Um, the next chapter in the book uh, is about um, is about the American case, and it's about the the double V or double victory movement of the African Americans during World War Two. Um, just with half an eye on on the amount of time that we're taking, and to give you enough time to answer the questions fully, if you don't mind, I think we'll, we'll skip over this chapter and just to flag it up for the listeners as a very interesting discussion about the role of masculinity and militarism and what these two ideas, how these two ideas played out in the movement. And instead, I want to ask you a question about chapter five, which is the, which is, um, which is a focus on the African-American autobiography, specifically that of one lady, Viola Andrews. And um, hers is a very interesting biography, which you say fails to assemble because it has too many others or, or too many overings. So could you please first tell us a little bit about Viola and then also 
what you mean to capture by this idea of, of there being too many others? Okay. Um, Viola, which is, which is how she called herself, Viola Andrews was um, um, lived in the countryside about an hour from Atlanta, where I now live, um, uh, an hour east of Atlanta. In um, the as, as her family, the person she married and her children and she were sharecroppers in that countryside, sharecroppers and laborers, and, uh, relatively um, poor. Uh, if comfortable uh, enough, uh, uh, lower-class lower people, peasant, um, laboring people, um, who in 1953, Viola leaves her husband, and I'll just explain the circumstances in a minute, um, and comes with her children. Four, four of her children have already moved to Atlanta as they've grown up. Three, three of the older ones, uh, older boys, Three, the three oldest boys have moved to Atlanta and joined the military. Um, the oldest girl has also joined them. They've gone to high school in Atlanta and so on. And they encourage and help the mother. But Viola leaves in 1953 um, uh, at the age of 42 uh, uh, or thereabouts in Angus, uh, when she's around 40. Um, and um, she brings all her children, including her last child who's in her womb, to Atlanta, and they move within one generation into middle-class conditions. She educates all her children. The children do fairly well. All As a result, through the military, they're able to go up for higher education, and several of them do extremely well, but all of them, boys and girls, move into relatively comfortable middle-class positions. And uh, that could be seen as a remarkable success story uh, from rags to riches, if you like, in any case, from uh, rather difficult circumstances to relatively more comfortable circumstances within one generation. What's fascinating, is fascinating about Viola's autobiography, which she begins to write in the 1960s, 10 years after she moves to Atlanta, uh, and which she writes in Atlanta, which is the, a center, a major headquarters, of the civil rights struggle uh, in America. It is the home of Martin Luther King Jr., as you know. Uh, it is a place from where the Student Nonviolent Action Committee, the Southern um, uh, Liberal Conference, the um, Southern uh, um, Alliance of Christian Churches, black, black Christian Churches, all of these things operate very, very strongly from Atlanta. Um, and there are huge marches, there are sit-ins at uh, lunch counters, there is participation in the struggles that go on in Alabama and, uh, and in Georgia uh, and all over the South, which brings about voting rights and the, the Civil Rights Act and so on of the, of the mid-60s. Um, Viola begins to write her autobiography, which is never published, but uh, which is, exists in hundreds and hundreds of pages, uh, through that struggle. Yet she never writes about the civil rights struggle. And so I mark that as a very interesting moment. What she writes about is black-white relations the whole of the, whole of the time. All her, her, um, her autobiography is full of the struggles of a, black, of, a, of a poor black woman in the countryside moving into the city and the kinds of discrimination and difficulties and so on that she had to face up, uh, face, uh, up to. 
Um, yet she never calls this civil rights. She never links it to the big civil rights marches. It's a struggle that somehow deeper, longer, um, it's gone on and it will continue to go on. And part of the reason for that, I suggest, is this. Viola marries uh, a man who is uh, white to all appearances. His father was a white man, his mother was a black woman, but a mixed uh, woman of Native American, white and black ancestry. A very beautiful uh, woman, um, brown-skinned, not, not very light-skinned. But the son of that marriage, uh, Viola's husband, George, is completely white. He, he's very, very light-skinned, he's blue-eyed, he's blonde-haired, he, he spends all his life uh, sh with his head shaven, with his head covered with a hat, uh, slouching, as his son writes somewhere, yeah, uh, George spent his life trying to be more black than the blacks. He spent all of his, all of his time trying to be more downtrodden than any blacks might appear because he wanted to fit into the black community. And the paradox, the difficulty for Viola is Viola, who's a very dark woman, also of a mixed ancestry, but she's a very dark woman and very proud of being black. And there's this husband of hers, a mixed race man like her, like she was a mixed race woman, but white and very, very ashamed of being white, ashamed of not being black enough. She leaves him in the end because he's because of his shame, because he refuses to stand up for things, he refuses to fight for his children and their rights, whereas she wants to do nothing but fight, make sure they will not suffer the kinds of discrimination, the kinds of deprivation that she and her husband and others of that generation had suffered. So she leaves her husband in part because of that, his kind of to, to join that fight. He, she also leaves because of the patriarchy, because her white father-in-law, so to speak, um, uh, ill-treats her and ill-treats all the black people around. Um, and because in that patriarchal world, her husband ill-treats her, beats her, uh, ref refuses to uh, um, see women uh, or children as equal partners in a family and a relationship. Now, that probably is enough of an indication of how many others there are in the story that she tells. For her, there is not only the racial other between black and white, there is also the others within the racial community, within the black community, those who are often called yellow, you know, not sufficiently black, people who don't fit into their community, who, who are derided because of it. There's all that kind, that kind of othering going on, all that kind of discrimination that, that, that people have to face. Children, her children have psychological problems, serious psychological problems, because some of them are too white. She herself suffers very serious psychological uh, um, um, challenges because of uh, what she uh, experiences in Atlanta where her fair-skinned daughter is often thought of as, she's uh, Viola is thought of as the, the fair-skinned daughter's nurse. Uh, and so she finds herself un, unwittingly walking behind, un, unthinkingly walking behind her daughter when they're walking along the streets and so on. Uh, uh, so they suffer not only the racial 
um, shall we say, clash uh, and uh, division between blacks and whites, but racial divisions and, and complications within the black community very seriously. Um, Viola suffers, of course, also from the patriarchal conditions that she grows up in, and that the 1960s and 70s once again challenge in a very fundamental way in the United States and in much of Western Europe and elsewhere. Um, but the, uh, the, the marking of that patriarchal world as a world that was not hers is another very important part of what is happening in autobiography. None of this is consciously or, what should we say, um, categorically done. It just emerges in the story. And one final suggestion I might make is, uh, Viola is a very, very deeply religious woman. For her, the Bible is her guide, her, her one soul ally all through her life. And for her, the Bible is literal truth quite often. It's not just metaphorical truth. It's not just a guide in a more general sense of values. It's literal truth. Moses delivered the Jews, led them out of Egypt. God will deliver the blacks and he's got me a radio, you know, it's that kind of thing. So, so the number of different others that emerge here, the number of different fault lines, the number of battles that are ongoing and very fundamental, and that make up, this is the last thing I'll say, that make for a civil rights struggle and a black struggle that is actually far deeper, far more varied in its locations, uh, far more unexpected, in its, in its roots uh, than we know, uh, all that comes out from her autobiography. So I, I would say that, you know, the struggle for civil rights, the struggle, struggle that we know as the Harlem Renaissance, all, all Viola's children are artists, they're creative writers, and she does, uh, they're creative writers or painters. Uh, and she does everything she can to encourage this from the time when they're three and four and five, and her husband is, is irate about the fact that they're wasting their time with these sorts of things. Uh, she encourages all of that. And in my mind, I often think, this is where the Harlem Renaissance began. This kind of work, this kind of aspiration, this kind of world that mothers and fathers in all parts of the American South and in all parts of America will have struggled to build, to create for their children, was what produced the great cultural renaissance called the, uh, the Harlem Renaissance. And the cultural um, effervescence and uh, uh, movement that was central to the civil rights struggle. Wonderful. Thank, thank you so much for that. It really is a, it's a totally fascinating chapter and she's a totally uh, fascinating um, person. So I'm really, I'm really glad to have read about her and I hope people at home got, um, got some taste of, of, of what a fascinating story that was. Um, if we just stick on the topic of, of uh, autobiographies, then we could also talk about uh, Dalit autobiography. So I was wondering, this is what you talk about in chapter six. So I was wondering, could you first please tell us a little bit about this genre, which is which is quite established and, and I believe growing as well. And then also how the individual and the community are often represented in these texts. Yeah. Um, I'm taking too long with all of this, so let me try and be briefer on that one. Um, the Dalit struggle uh, developed on two fronts. And one was this front of writing, of cultural um, uh, efflorescence. And in the, in the area of cultural struggle, what Dalits and African-Americans too in, in, the, uh, in the earlier stages produced was mainly autobiographical writing and poetry. The poetry, 
poetry of the oppressed and the autobiographical writings, which are their only archive. The autobiography in my life story is my archive. And these were the things that first brought uh, attention to the kinds of lives that Dalits have had to live uh, and African-Americans had to live and other oppressed peoples have had to live uh, in different parts of the recognizing in detail or with any visceral sense what uh, these lives meant and how um, difficult uh, and horrendous these lives could be. So Dalit autobiography emerges in the 1970s, interestingly, um, uh, around the political movement which, which, uh, of young people who called themselves the Dalit Panthers, named after the Black Panthers. Uh, in Western uh, the United States. Uh, the Dalit Panthers in the 1970s called themselves Dalit Panthers. They were very militant. They were calling for um, armed struggle. Of course, India didn't have the kind, um, didn't have, it's more appropriate, I was going to say, doesn't have the kind of gun laws and availability of guns that that uh, the United States had. So they didn't, it doesn't become a, a, a movement with firearms, but it is a very militant, very, very strong, aggressive movement uh, of attack against Brahmins and against the upper castes and so on. Uh, in that, autobiographical writing was the cultural moment, the cultural side of this movement. And the fact that Indian government and the Indian constitution had provided educational and public service opportunities and had, had built into the Indian constitution. Ambedkar was a critical person in this, but he was supported by the vast majority of parliamentarians and constitution writers and makers uh, of the mid-20th century. Um, they had built in affirmative action quotas, um, 10% of seats in uh, high schools and uh, universities, 10% of seats in public services for people of Dalit background, people from ex castes and communities. That uh, population, uh, young people who go into colleges and go into public service, go into intellectual, uh, into professional middle class situations uh, in well, within the first generation after Indian independence, um, are the people who become these new writers. They write the autobiographies, they write about the cultural struggle, they write about uh, Dalit lives. And that movement, starting in Western India, in Maharashtra, which is where Ambedkar was from, then spreads and, and spreading very quickly to Southern India, where lower caste and Dalit struggles had started fairly early on. It has spread in the 1980s and 90s, all over the country and has become a very, very powerful expression of um, citizenship rights, of civil rights, of, of, you know, the need to make a modern world. So that's the background to, to uh, the making of uh, the Dalit autobiographies. Was there another part to the question you asked me? But just, I mean, I, I don't know whether we'll have time to discuss the two biographies that, uh, that you have, but maybe that, that you detail in the chapter, but you, you talked a little bit in the sort of the, conclusion to that about how the individual and the community are, are represented in these texts. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and again, um, uh, perhaps the best thing to say is that many of these autobiographies and writers say in so many words, this is not a traditional autobiography. 
this is not the autobiography of an individual. Sometimes they say this is the autobiography of a community, even though that is a very odd statement to make. Some of them call it a sociobiography. But I think with African-American struggles, with uh, the struggles of Aboriginal peoples in Australia, with the struggles of many stigmatized peoples in many parts of the world of this kind, what we have is autobiographies as early histories, as statements of the conditions of the community. They're very much, the the writing is both about an individual and a community. Now, I want to just stress that this is probably even more the case amongst Dalits than it is amongst the African-Americans that I studied. And there are probably two two, um, different sorts of reasons for this. One is that the collective, cities which reproduce countryside-like and caste-like locations and um, uh, population settlements. Um, In the countryside as well as in the cities, the collective, the caste, the community, the the, um, group that you belong to remains a very, very much more important node, focus, around which individuals are in which individuals must build their lives. The individual cannot so easily separate himself or herself from the community in the social consciousness and the social conditions that India has to this day uh, as compared to what individuals can do in the United States. I don't want to suggest that this is black, uh, black and white difference. I mean, you know, so sharp that there's nothing that uh, of, um, that is similar. But in the Indian case, the collective does tend to, if you like, um, engulf the individual rather more, uh, make demands on the individual rather more. And one other part of that is that the Dalit movement is, of course, a much more recent movement than the African-American struggle, which from the times... Uh, of the, um, the war against slavery uh, has had over a hundred years. Uh, the Dalit struggle is still in its in its current form, if you like, sixty or seventy years old, and not much more. And as a young movement, I think it is uh, it's more demand. So the individual who makes good, who becomes middle class, uh, who becomes a civil servant or a professor or a doctor or a lawyer, that sort of individual is called upon to answer the question, why are you not doing more for the community? Why are you talking about yourself and not the community? And I think the autobiographies come in that way, to be informed very much more by this tension, this this, uh, shared concern with the rights and needs and aspirations of the individual and the individual's family, but with the rights and aspirations and needs of the community as well. Wonderful. Thank, thank you so much for that. There's a, there's a lot more in this book, and there's, so there's many things we've not had the chance um, to talk about, but I'd just like to recommend it for anyone listening to the podcast. It really is a, a fascinating read. Before I, before I received the book, just because of the grand title, A History of Prejudice, I was expecting a, a really fat book, but it's actually a very slim book and a very and a very and a very beautiful read. So um, yeah, I'd really like to recommend that to um, to everyone out there. And now that this book is out, I'm sure you have new or uh, future projects in mind. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what your um, current and future projects are. 
<laughs> and that's the largest question you've asked. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try and make the shortest answer. Yes. Um, like all of us, you know, as, as you work more and more on things, you know, more projects emerge. And write about or think about, think about is, is the best uh, term. Um, but at the moment, there are two things that I'm working on pretty actively and concerned with um, urgently, if you like. Um, one is a fairly, uh, it's not abstract, uh, theoretical uh, concern with the issue of politics and democracy in our time. And I'm thinking about this in the in in a world context. I mean, I'm going to take America and India as my main examples, but I take Dubai as a very central example. In Europe, in in North America, uh, in in um, Africa and Asia too, um, into populations uh, that uh, you know, uh, what should we say, into. For populations are separated from one another, segregated from one another in very significant ways, behind walls quite often, literally behind walls, in fortress-like condition. So let's just take Dubai, and that might make the point um, quickly for, um, for, for the purposes of this answer. In Dubai, people t talk about a triptych of populations, three different kinds, uh, a kind of um, um, economic elite, of Europeans, of um, a, increasingly of Asians, uh, expats who live in very comfortable sorts of surroundings where it, it even rains now, their canals and their green lawns and their very comfortable uh, bungalows and so on and so forth. They live in a, in a part of the city or a part of the country that others do, cannot easily even aspire to. Now, these expats, I suggest to you, now exist in most parts of the world they are an economic elite that does not need the old politics of the nation state, does not even vote much of the time, isn't particularly concerned with them. They are, and think of themselves, as citizens of the world and they can travel almost anywhere. They do not need political power in a traditional sense. They need some other people to do their politics for them and they usually have them. So in Dubai, you have the Emirati rulers doing the, doing the political work for that economic elite even if the Emirati rulers are sometimes part of that economic elite themselves. So the Emirati rulers will create the conditions for an expat and economic elite, uh, expatriate population and economic elite that wants certain conditions for investment and trade and profit and so on and so forth, uh, but that don't want to sully their hands with the dirty business of politics. And then, so there's a, there's a kind of local ruling class and bureaucratic population that does all of that work of dirty politics that used to be done in the past by many different kinds of groups. And then there is a huge population of immigrants, usually single male migrants, who do not even have um, their passports with them. Their, their travel papers are often confiscated when they arrive. They have short-term contracts, they have no rights in the land and they will often be repatriated. They do the hard, dirty labor of building this, the stadium in Qatar for the um, fourth, for the World, World Cup football tournament that is supposed to happen there. Uh, they do the, all the work in, in Dubai for building the malls, building the luxury apartments, building the canals, whatever, what, what have you, building the airport. They live near the airport in terrible conditions uh, without air conditioning uh, and so on. 
that triptych of populations, to which I will add an older middle class population, which many of the new laborers, many of the other um, members of the economic and political classes also might join at various points, a kind of inchoate middle class population that is increasing in size to some extent, that is committed to Dubai, uh, but also committed to India, if that's where they came from, or to Pakistan, or to Singapore, or the Philippines, where they where they came from originally, um, and who live in a less certain condition than they used to when nation states were much clearer. So what, what this, what my suggestion is, is that with this kind of distribution of populations, and I suggest that something of that kind of distribution of populations is taking place all over the world, even though its components, the content of each category will differ ra rather radically in different parts of the world. They had very different histories in North America or Western Europe or uh, Southeast Asia. But these, this, this, uh, disaggregation of populations and disaggregation of economic and political privileges is taking place very rapidly and very widely across the world. And so I'm thinking uh, um, as much as I can and trying to work out what are the conditions of politics and democracy in this kind of time, politics and democracy in individual nations and across the world. And I'm thinking uh, the important question here is what are the forces that actually make for democracy, make for the possibilities of changed worlds and better opportunities for all in these circumstances? And I think the answers are actually unexpected. They are unusual answers. It is not the educated and not the, more, the richest people who are by any means committed to democracy or committed to producing the better world. So that's one project. I'm sorry, that took longer than I had thought. The other one uh, is is a more focused, uh, more um, uh, empirically grounded uh, too. I mean, the first one, ethnographically grounded, I think uh, will be strong empirically too. But the, the second one, uh, probably the best way to think about it is um, as a book for a wider audience uh, on India in the 20th century, uh, 20th century India, but in which the cast of characters will not be primarily um, Gandhi and Nehru and Ambedkar and Rajgopalachari and, you know, uh, the well-known and remarkable political leaders uh, or um, thinkers uh, who made modern India. Uh, they will be there. But I'm really very interested in the kinds of writers in Hindi and Marathi and um, Urdu and so on who wrote about the ways in which life in the villages and towns around them was changing and their own aspirations and the aspirations of people around them and how these were affected by, made by, uh, trans transformed by the conditions of 20th century India. And so the, my cast of characters would be primarily, if you like, or at least the pegs upon which I might hang the story, is a set of writers who write at the beginning of the 20th century, middle of the 20th century, and the end of the 20th century. But through them, the cast of characters that are central to their novels and short stories and their understanding of this society and its transformations. Because those that cast of characters include, includes Dalits and women and poor people and uh, what have you, uh, who don't have archives, who do not don't have privileges, don't have the time to step back and do the kind of thinking and writing that we might, uh, um, uh, we certainly have the time for, and that I hope we might do.
wonderful. They, they both sound like two absolutely fascinating projects, and we look forward to, to reading them in a year or two years down the line. They, they, they really sound wonderful. So uh, thanks for letting us know about then, and thanks again for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you today about your work. Thank you, Ian, and I'm, I'm sorry I was long-winded about so many of those uh, responses, but your questions, as I said before, were very, very um, large questions. Uh, I hope I was able to say something to them. Okay, thank you, and we look forward to talking about your work sometime. Uh, I hope so, too. Thanks so much for downloading the new books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook, and today we've been talking about the history of prejudice, race, caste and difference in India and the United States by Guy Nendra Pandey. I really enjoyed this book. It's, it's, it's a mind-blowing book in many different ways, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to our discussion today. I also hope you download the podcast next time. Ta-ra!